0: Uh, God is indeed sovereign and we do believe that even when the pastor loses his voice in the preaching. Would you turn with me or listen on as I read Leviticus chapter 19 the second part verses 19 to the end of the chapter. The chapter really stands as one but As you uh, may remember from last time, I divided it in two because there is something of a natural division. There is also uh, just the need. There's too much here uh, for, for one sermon in this great chapter. And so give your attention to God's word. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed nor a garment of mixed Uh, Nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine. And who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom. For this there shall be scourging. But they shall not be put to death because she was not free. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. A ram as a trespass offering, the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks. On you I am the Lord. Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. You shall keep my sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits; do not seek after them to be defiled by them, I am the Lord your God. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be, uh, shall be to you as one born among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest eba, an honest in. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the book of Leviticus for one thing, but especially now in this hour, the chapter 19, which contains and conveys so much of your will to us, what it means to be holy. Help us, O God. To heed these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you remember last time, uh, and I got this from one of the commentaries, I think this is the most helpful way to look at Leviticus 19, and that is to call this the Levitical Decalogue. God is giving the Ten Commandments again, as he's apt to do. He'll do so again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. It isn't solely the Decalogue, of course. There are ceremonial laws mixed in as we find uh, throughout the book of Leviticus there's nothing surprising there the only difficulty perhaps that we would find uh, and that I find Christians are debating uh, well uh, up up to today I was uh, I was texting a pastor friend of mine about one of these laws now is it moral or ceremonial and uh, we we aren't always sure, and I'm willing to confess that to you. At times when I'm I'm not sure. At other times it, it's clear. Uh, at any rate, that's the difficulty we face. And yet, at the same time, we recognize that so many of these laws, uh, which come to us, are a restatement in practical form of the moral law, presenting to us uh, the way and the path of holiness. And the way the way that I propose to. You, uh, unfold the teaching of this chapter in the second part uh, part is to uh, go, go through it in the way that I did last time, namely uh, to give a general summary of the laws that we have uh, through a list, uh, and then rather than giving a commentary on each of those laws, uh, which I uh, personally would find less edifying, what I wish to do is to give uh, a series of observations in light of the teaching here. And so as a first main point, we have a general outline of the laws which are found here. R- remembering uh, the, the division of the text, verse 19, indicating uh, in the minds of some the beginning of a new section, you shall keep my statutes. And the first thing that I would notice here is just to remind you the law of holiness itself, which stands uh, at the foreground of all that the Lord says in What we call the holiness code, beginning in chapter 17, going to the end of the chapter, you shall be holy for I am holy. And that's well, that's the kind of refrain that uh, ought to reverberate, reverberate throughout this chapter. All throughout the Lord is saying in so many ways and so many practical ways to the Israelites in those days and even still to us today, you shall be holy for I am holy. There is the uh, the inner logic and the motive of personal holiness. And and what you find uh, is, in essence, the same thing. Stated a little differently in verse 19. You shall keep my statutes, the Lord is saying. And then you find it again at the end. That's the law of holiness. There is a general need and a requirement for holiness. Remember what I said last time. I won't restate the point in full. But there's nothing optional about this. God isn't saying holiness is something you might do or you might not do. He's saying this is an absolute non-negotiable requirement which I am calling my church to in every age you shall be holy even as I am holy and then we notice and this is another indication that things are a little different in the second part of Leviticus 19 or the Levitical Decalogue that uh, whereas last time it seemed that everything was neat and tidy and easy. There was just one ceremonial law; there was no question about it. Everything else was clearly moral law, a restatement of the Ten Commandments. You could just as easily tell a group of Christians today to observe these laws as you could have back then. But this second portion isn't quite so easy. You have the mixing of unlikes. Don't wear a garment that is two different threads of of linen or wool. Mixing of unlikes is forbidden. That's the first particular law, verse 19. Then you have this interesting, what I would call the law of the slave girl, and what is to do in the case, uh, in the case of that. You have uh, something about the planting of trees and how long they were to wait before they could eat the fruit of the tree. Now, just as I put it that way, I think the imagery, the imagery is fairly clear, and uh, in, in a short while I plan to make that explicit. Uh, following that, you have what I would call various laws in verses 26 through 28. And then again, in verse 31, things like, well, again, don't eat the blood. Don't uh, shave uh, your head in a certain way. Uh, don't put a tattoo on your body. Don't cut your skin. These were uh, pagan practices associated with mourning. Uh, don't go to a soothsayer. Don't go to a medium. You know, these sorts of things are present even today. The real heart of the passage is found in verses 29 and 30. What I would call worship true and false is the forbidding of the temple prostitute on the one hand, the worship of sex. And on the other hand, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. In, in my mind, that is the real heart of the passage. Verse 30. True worship. The fifth commandment next is restated in Verse 32. Where the Lord uh, tells us, in this case, and and, and as a way to confirm the teaching of the shorter and the larger catechism, uh, that when the Lord says to honor your parents, he has something much bigger in mind. We are to reverence all of those in authority. Even here it says, the aged, the gray-headed man, honor him. Don't exploit the stranger, verses 33 and 34, the law of love once more, as it was found at the end. Of the first section. Another thing, uh, another statement, I mean, about fair trade and just balances. And then finally, it's summed up. Well, well, and I would just note, uh, on the point before, verse 34, you shall love them as yourself. That's the law of love. It's stated twice, uh, in Leviticus 19, and those sorts of things ought to arrest us. But the final, uh, note in this list is Israel's priestly calling. Therefore, you shall observe my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. He's calling Israel to be a kingdom of priests, as we saw in Exodus. Well, um, gaining there some familiarity with what uh, you find in that uh, in, in that passage. As I say, my interest isn't to just explain all of the the details of each particular law. What I want to do is uh, as the main heading, and this is the second heading, is to make a series of observations about these laws. The first of which is this, how different the passage is than the last. Now, I already said that, but let me uh, begin to explore and to expand upon that. Last time, as I said, the laws were more or less straightforward. It was easy. But here... There is a great degree, and I use this word very intentionally. It's the same word you find in Bonar. It's a word we've used before in considering the ceremonial law. There is a great or a high degree of arbitrariness. Many of the things that the Lord tells the people to do uh, are, in fact, arbitrary rules. They do not have the appearance of moral necessity. It would never occur to the people to do these things if the Lord had not said, To do them. And so there are things as I say. Which have no apparent morality in them. But which as ceremonial laws. Again note. We're speaking of the ceremonial law. Whenever we speak in that way. We would never say that the moral law is arbitrary. But we would say that. Of the ceremonial law in many cases. Remember that the ceremonial laws come to us. As pictures. Of spiritual things. And in the case of this. Uh. This list of laws, they are pictures of what true holiness consists of as a practical thing. Uh, so, for instance, if you go back to the garden and there you find Adam and Eve being instructed by the Lord and the Lord gives them a law which is eminently arbitrary. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not as though eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in itself evil. But connected to that tree was attached to prohibition. And it was, uh, as as I've often said and I think I've read somewhere, it was a bare test of obedience. Simply, will you obey God? In the case of these laws, there is something which almost seems trivial about them. That's the word uh, Andrew Bonar uses. And you know how much. I've depended on his commentary on Leviticus. Almost trivial. Uh, going on with the quote, he says, Being a people familiar with types and emblems, it was natural to teach them by common occurrences spiritual truths, such as the immoral mixtures of heathen lewdness. That is in the mixture of uh, the sweater. Don't, don't mix the wools. Why? Well, Because there was a spiritual truth that God wanted to be on their minds, even as they were making clothes and and putting those clothes on. Not that there was something sinful about the mixing of yarns, but there was something very sinful about the mixing with the customs and the practices of the sinful nations. And that's how the ceremonial law often functioned. Things which were indifferent in themselves became pictures of spiritual truths. Already I've given you one such case. But here is another in the case of the trees. Remember, I said we would come back to that. God was saying, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Does that sound familiar at all? For a period of time. Well, here is another picture. Here is another reminder of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not saying that the trees here functioned in exactly the same way, but that they became uh, to Israel a, a reminder of Adam's downfall. As a man who was holy and who became unholy because he did not obey the word of the Lord. And the question which then confronted Israel was simply, will they abstain when Adam did not? You see, it it, it became almost immediately evident as soon as they were confronted with this test. Or in another case, adopting the customs of the nations, the the cutting of the hair, uh, the the, the, the cutting of the body even, or the making of tattoos. These are spiritual truths uh, or these these laws conveyed spiritual truths that always remain relevant, though in particular cases uh, they may differ. They may come to us in a different way, I mean. We don't find the Lord saying uh, what he says under these various laws, verses 26 through uh, 28 and verse 31, in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean that this passage is nothing to say to us, because, as I say, uh, the spiritual truths always remain relevant. Uh, one of the questions that you might have, and I'll just go ahead and ask it and then immediately give the answer. Am I saying not to get a tattoo? Well, that you read that passage. That's what everybody wants to know. And let me uh, be as clear as I can. I have no idea. That's my answer. I do not know. I will just tell you that almost everyone I know says that this is ceremonial law. But even if it is, let me just, let me just add one word to that. Let's say it's ceremonial law, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and agree with that. Even as a ceremonial law, there is a spiritual truth that is meant to occur to you. You have to realize, uh, beloved, that in the old covenant, even then these things struck them as arbitrary. They said, Lord, what are you telling us? Why are you asking us to do this? And it it was in, in the act of observing these things that they began to contemplate and meditate on the essence of true holiness. And here is the essence of true holiness. It is found in living differently than the world does. You see the world behaving in a certain way. You see the world eager to do certain things and express itself in certain ways. And you realize now, as a Christian person, that God is calling me to live in a distinct manner and in a different way. And that I am meant to express what is, what is uh, being wrought in me inwardly by the Holy Spirit in a way that looks radically different than the world. That's the principle. That's the spiritual truth. And it was the same thing back then. Another point that we find here is the importance of maintaining distinctions, which is evident throughout right away the not mixing of of, of, uh, of strains in, or, or of or of grains. Maintaining distinctions, uh, I'll say something again that I said last time, that holiness uh, we discover in this passage, and I think the rest of the Bible is clear enough in this regard is antithetical to the egalitarian ethic. That is the sense in which there are no distinctions among among, uh, people. In particular, what the egalitarian ethic finds so uh, hateful, what God is appealing to here in appealing to the distinctions is the presence of authority or to the presence of station, Or to the presence of age. Remember what he says about rising in the presence of a gray-headed man. Are you prepared to tell me that that is ceremonial law? Do we not find uh, that the older men and women are to be honored even in the New Testament? And even it goes so far as to say that not to regard such things. To disregard them is tantamount to not fearing God. The man who despises authority. The man who despises Well, station or order. This is a man who doesn't fear God. And so I would put it like this, and and I put it like this uh, after reading uh, David Brainerd's journals. Now, this isn't exactly how we put it, but I think it's a fair summary of what he discovered when he preached to the Indians and he saw them being converted. Holiness is concerned with good manners. Again, I'm saying Brainerd never said that. I'm saying it. But I think Brainerd said many things that were very similar. Holiness is concerned with maintaining order and decency. It's concerned with respect and honor. This is one of the things that missionaries like Brainerd have noticed. Is that Christianity has a tendency to create decency, to create order among its converts when there was none before. And I ask you, do you find that surprising? Would you notice at the same time? How this is tempered, uh, the appeal to order and authority and so on and station is tempered with mercy to the stranger and the poor. Never hear God saying uh, that as, as he appeals to the difference between the rich and the poor uh, and, and those with power and those without. Never hear God saying disregard the lowly, disregard the stranger or the poor. But God is always appealing to his people that they are to be tender hearted. To the downcast. Even as God is uh, is and was tender hearted to them. And even as God was tender hearted to all of you. You remember what Paul says. And I'll say it to you. I don't see many of the mighty of the world. But do you realize that God has regarded you. He has regarded the lowly of this age. That's the kind of God he is. And holiness means here as ever. That we are to be like God. We are to resemble God. We are those who know what it is to dwell in his sanctuary, which means to dwell in his presence. And to dwell in his presence is to be made like God. You see, it's not just to get a sense of what he's like, that that's the starting point, but it is to have uh, through this a transforming experience we are, where we, whereby we are made more and more to resemble him in the world. Another point, do you see how the law is given at Sinai requires expansion. Now the reason I say that is because you have, for instance, as I said earlier, the fifth commandment, occurs to was in a different form. In, in, in the case of uh, Sinai, it's on your father and mother. It, here it is uh, rise in the presence of the gray-headed man. It's the same law, but but realize that what God is doing is expanding it. Or he's spiritualizing it as, as uh, it, it is sometimes said. Now that's Precisely what God did after giving the law at Sinai, if you remember in uh, Exodus chapters 21 through 23, he gives the law, but then he immediately expands it. He imagines a variety of circumstances in which man uh, is relating, especially to his fellow man. And he says, here's what it means to keep the law in this situation or in this situation. Uh, that's precisely what God is doing here in Leviticus 19. He isn't giving simply or restating the law, but he is expanding upon it. We read as the scripture reading, the Sermon on the Mount. That's precisely what our Lord is doing there. What I would have you to see is that that is what the life of holiness requires. What it involves. It involves attention to detail. Not limiting the law in its application to limited cases. That's what the Pharisees did. They said, well, the law only applies in so uh, such and." In- Such many cases, uh, therefore, it doesn't apply to me. And thus they were not holy. And thus they did not keep the law. But that is not what holiness demands of us, but rather the opposite. It involves envisioning a broad application and many cases. In exact contrast to the Pharisees, realizing that in every station, in every situation, in all of the varieties of life itself, there the law is asking something of me, whether with respect to my neighbor or to God or to myself. And yet I would note, especially on this point, and it's clear that Jesus is noting the same thing. How many Pharisees there are today? Well, To that I would say you will never be holy if that is your attitude of the law. If you're only expanding it so far that it excuses your own sinful behaviors, which is really to limit it. But the next thing that I would say, uh, and these next two points I think are the real heart of what we see here, is how there are certain threats to holiness that must be avoided. God is saying if you would be Holy, you've got to watch out for certain things. You've got to be sure to avoid them. The first and greatest threat is forsaking God. It is, if you will, that of man-made morality. It's being a conformist, a desire to be like the world, and a desire to be liked by the world. If you have to be like everyone else, then you can never be holy. Experience alone will teach you that. No, the holy man is someone who's willing to say, I want to be like God. I want to be numbered among his people, among his saints. That is, those who are holy. Whatever man thinks of me. Another thing, another threat that stands out here is the way that man tends to sexualize everything. I know these things are not necessarily comfortable to talk about from the pulpit or even uh, just In private company. But this is something that we find we cannot escape. It's something that Israel couldn't escape. Going through the wilderness. Going into Canaan. Even in her own heart. This tendency to sexualize everything. Even a man's own daughters. That's what the temple prostitute represents. A man who uh, gave his daughter over to prostitution. So that she could serve as a temple prostitute. It was, in essence, making an idol out of sex. Connecting worship with sex explicitly. Allowing the family at the same time to become depraved by it. Here is the same thing that we face today. It's, uh, in many ways, the greatest threat to the holy life. And that is the worship of sex. Making an idol of sex. Literally. And more and more. What we find being said here. I could say to you, and that is children are paying a price for it. When you uh, engage in sexual sin, fathers, your sons and your daughters are paying the price. Do you realize that? Children are paying the price for this obs- uh, obsession, but it ought never to be that way among the people of God. And did you hear also what God says. Uh, in light of this. And it's the same thing that Paul says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of sin. And uh, the whole lump becomes defiled. Or as God says here. A little bit of this sin. And the whole land becomes full. Of wickedness. When the family itself. And the worship of God becomes infected. With the worship of sex, another threat. Another threat is seen in the ways distinctions become abolished, the way the difference between the church and the world is minimized in the details of our lives, the way we treat the old or the stranger or even our own children. You see, the world is a way of doing these things, but this is simply a question uh, God is saying, whether you take certain laws as ceremony or moral, the principle is the same throughout. Who is leading whom? Do we as the people of God look to the world to teach us? Do we embrace their customs and their ways? Are they teaching us how to worship God? Are they teaching us how to ra- uh, uh, how to raise our children? Are they instructing us in the priorities of our own heart? Do we look to the world to teach us? That is always one of the greatest threats to holiness. It's the world itself in all of its priorities and ways. It it is allowing the world to have too much say in our lives, allowing even the world to influence our own customs. But on the other side, there are safeguards, which God says enables us uh, to avoid these dangers and these threats. But which, if ignored, expose us to the dangers and make us liable to fall. The biggest safeguard here is simply the words fear God, the fear of God. The man who fears God is the one who doesn't listen to the world. He's listening to God and he's too interested to know what God has to say and what God thinks. He observes God's statutes. A man like Paul, you think of what he says in the epistles, he says, have I become the servant of men? Was my interest in winning the favor in the applause of men? Or did you find in me one who was concerned always to be the servant of God? That is a man who fears the Lord. And that is the path to holiness. That is uh, one of the safeguards that a man is able to erect to, to, uh, to protect him against the encroachments of the world, the fear of God. But then there is what I said is perhaps the key verse, the whole Of the chapter and that is what is said in verse 30. I would attach special importance to that verse. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And so uh, connected with the fear of the Lord which you even find in this verse. Are the Sabbath and the sanctuary. The Sabbath and the sanctuary are the primary Again, along with the fear of God, the primary safeguards to the life of holiness or against the encroachments of the world. Particular care is to be given to each. The people of God are to keep God's Sabbaths and they are to reverence his sanctuary. Uh, Let me give to you once more a quote from Bonar's commentary. He says, all immorality and all manner of evil will attend upon the neglect of the Sabbath. You see a people who begin to go astray and they begin to look more and more like the world. What is the cause? Well, look at their Sundays. Likewise, Bonar says with regard to the sanctuary, the foregoing duties, he's assuming the voice of the Lord, by the way, when he says this, the foregoing duties will be remembered and enforced just in proportion as you keep up your soul's. Uh, Up in your souls, my worship by seeing me set forth in the sanctuary and by spending the Sabbath in my fellowship. Uh, One of the things that you begin to notice in Israel, and it doesn't take long to get here, but you certainly see later on uh, the prophets raising the cry that Israel was profaning herself by failing to keep the Sabbath. They were doing worship or, or excuse me, they were doing business on the Sabbath rather than attending to God's worship on that day. And and more and more it is, it is becoming clear on Sunday who is really willing to follow God and who isn't. Who is going along with the world and its pursuits and its vain desires and who is going along with the church. Recognize uh, that God is here protecting you. He is setting up a hedge around the church to safeguard her against the encroachments of the world. And the one who is uh, concerned to keep the Sabbath is one who is keeping the world out at least one day in seven. And the one who is found in the church morning and evening is the one, well, is the one who is kept uh, from so much of the frenzied uh, uh, busyness of the world on Sunday, especially in its pursuit of sin. God is protecting his church. Understand that is what holiness is like. It's, as the Puritans would say, uh, not even living on the borders of sin, but staying as far away as we can. And yet, is that what we find men and women who call themselves Christians doing today? Do we find them keeping their sab- Sabbath? Do we find them in the house of God? I realize every time I say this on a Sunday night, I'm preaching to the choir. You are here in church on a Sunday night. Praise God for that. But there are so many Christians today and I wonder, I wonder uh, how concerning you find this. There are so many Christians today, far too many, who have little concern to keep the Sabbath and too little concern to be found in church. And I would ask such a man whether he can be surprised, he who breaks God's Sabbaths and neglects his earthly sanctuaries and slights God's worship week after week. Can he be surprised that he is not holy? Can he be surprised that he knows so little of God? And that instead he is more like the world than he is like God and his saints. Oh, if you would be holy, hear what God is saying to you as the church. He says, keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Another thing that I would notice here has to do with the blending of the ceremonial and the moral laws. I would actually say that that is the essence of holiness. Holiness isn't just saying for the new covenant Christian, well, you know, I'm only interested in the moral laws. And we can just set aside the ceremonial laws. I think that misses something that is deeply important to the whole logic of holiness. And certainly I don't mean to say... That the ceremonial law is still in force for the believer. It isn't. And yet I would say this. In light of the teaching of Leviticus. And also the teaching of the New Testament. Especially in the book of Hebrews. That if the new covenant believer would be holy. In his desire to keep the moral law. Which he realizes is still binding to him. He must have an eye for it. In his desire to keep the Ten Commandments. He must always have an eye for the ceremonial law. He needs to see, that is to say, the same spiritual truths. He needs to be brought back to the altar. He needs to be brought back to the tabernacle and to the blood. He needs to be brought into the presence of a bleeding savior, for instance. He needs to recognize the importance of the blood and of the sacrifice and of atonement. But it's a final point. I would notice here, and I think this was the first point last time, the importance attached to the fourth and the fifth commandments. You remember the first thing God says. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father and keep my Sabbath. I'm the Lord, your God. That's the first thing he says. And do you realize he says the same things here? It's one of the few things these two sections have in common. The presence of authority and the right use of time. Honor the aged. Keep the Sabbath. It's actually so simple, I almost can't believe it. And yet, again, I ask is that what we are doing? Is that what you find in the church? Look at your lives, especially on the point of authority. Do we have a concern to honor? Are we slow to speak in the presence of an older man and an older woman? Or are we so infected with the egalitarian spirit of the age that we've lost all sight of this distinction? Well, that's how the world today lives, especially in this country. It doesn't have any appreciation for this point. And yet we find that God is saying, here is a real point of difference between my people and the world. They respect their elders. And so while I would say that it is often the case that the church is far too like the world on this point, I would also say how easy it would be for the church to declare her difference, her holiness, for the church to appear as a bright shining light in the sinful age in which we live. Remember your priestly calling. Remember what you are, what God is calling you to. Remember this as well that others are watching, that the world sees what the church does and how we live. And they stand ready to condemn you, Peter says. But the truth is, here is a life which even they cannot condemn. And so you will silence them in their desire to do so by your blameless and upright lives. Perhaps others, Peter says, may even be converted by the power of this kind of witness. He actually says that to the wives of unbelieving husbands. I do not mean to suggest that the life of holiness, to use the very logic of Peter himself, is something that we are able to live on our own, in our own strength. Of course, it is God who is calling us to this. And it is he who has made us a holy people and who has caused us to be born again. Peter says Verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for the salvation, for for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so keep that in the first position. God is calling you to holiness, but not in a vacuum. You begin with this thought that in calling you to this, he's caused you to be born again. He has uh, enabled you uh, to use the language of Romans chapter six to be made new men made new. But then, Peter says, and Paul says, don't waste your opportunity. The world is watching. Live a life which is devoted to the service of God, he goes on to say. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, that is, before he saved you. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I Am holy, And here again in chapter two, your priestly calling chapter two, verse four, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verses nine through twelve. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And do you see it's exactly what God is saying to Israel at the end of chapter 19. Therefore, you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments. You shall perform them. I am the Lord. That is the church's calling, beloved, in every age. She is to be holy. She is to be set apart and different as the unique possession of God. Uniquely fitted, Peter says, to display his glory and his own holiness. These are not things that you will find in the world. You will look for them in vain. Oh, but you will find them in the church, Peter says. Also, that he might be praised. And so that even perhaps the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, might call upon his name and be saved. And will you heed the call to be holy and to observe the statutes and the judgments of God and thus to become a vessel and a vehicle to display and show forth his glory and his holiness to a dark and a dying world? amen let us stay